you're basically one of the leading thinkers, I would say, arguably the leading thinker of what we might call the school of thought that's known as accelerationism. And I would say that just very briefly, and certainly all too schematically, accelerationism is something like the view that contemporary history is changing at an exponential rate, technologically and economically, and that this rate of change uh, kind of confounds nearly all of our traditional concepts for thinking about society and economics and politics. And so that's just for people who have no idea what we're going to be talking about. That's, that's broadly kind of the school of thought that you're uh, known for and associated with. So, I mean, maybe just before we even move forward, it, that's my kind of short uh, elevator pitch, as it were. W- would you add anything to that? If someone sort of on the street walked up to you and asked you, what, what is this whole accelerationism thing? Uh, is there a kind of essence or key upshot that, that you would uh, add to what I just said? Um, I, I think it's one, I mean, look, we're going to have this conversation. Uh, so, you know, it, it's probably uh, to try and anticipate might be, might be a mistake. And I think, you know, as, as we start talking about it, we will find ourselves in a, in a, the various dimensions of acceleration is that. I mean, in terms of my own um, involvement in it, I would say the, um, the, the guiding term for, for certainly a long time was cybernetics. And, and you know, the, the basic mm. accelerationist uh, thesis is that there is a uh, that modernity is dominated by positive feedback processes rather than negative feedback processes. And, and the, the, the first wave of, of cybernetic theory, um, which uh, consistently tr- sort of normalized negative homeostatic feedback and pathologized positive feedback, was therefore self-obsolescing. I mean, it was something that was not going to be a, a sustainable stance given the, as you say, the, the, the basic accelerating uh, trend of the, of the modern process, most extremely in its sort of uh, te- technological and economic um, dimensions. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of, I guess, the off-the-shelf uh, conceptual vocabulary that I that I think, at least initially, it comes in with it. Um, but I but I, it's it, it's itself extremely dynamic, and and we've seen, you know, an astounding range of different systems of reference get sucked into this uh, accelerationist uh, conversation. Perhaps you could call it. I don't I don't know right. what the best way to describe that culture even. I've always been extremely curious about your sort of the relationship between your earlier work and your current thinking on these matters. And so a lot of your early work from the 1990s, it tends to embrace a fairly radical and even kind of emancipatory political tone. I think it's fair to say, you know, it's very kind of insurrectionary anarchist. I would say, you know, there's, there's a lot of kind of feminist connotations. It's very cyberpunk, obviously, Um, and so it's all about theorizing. A lot of it is about theorizing rebellion in the new digital context, you know, things like hacking the macropod and, you know, exploiting glitches in what you call the human security system. 
this, these sorts of notions. Uh, you talk about K war, uh, which I kind of interpret to be a kind of like revolutionary guerrilla warfare, but on the level of, of the social codes in some sense. Um, and you know, back from that period, you're, you're even interested in more fantastic ideas such as, uh, stuff like neo-Lemurian time war in which, you know, one gets the sense that you, your position then seems to be that, or at least you seem to have thought that these sorts of accelerationist insights might allow rebellious individuals and groups to fundamentally alter or hack the nature of social reality in ways that the status quo institutions are not able to defend against. And so it's this very heady emancipatory kind of um, tone to all of it. And so a lot of people who are interested in your work and in your ideas um, got into you through these early texts. And I, I think we know it's very clear that since then, your thinking has evolved drastically. But what's unclear, I think, is how and why exactly your perspective has changed or just you know how to understand the trajectory between those early kind of heady, uh, typically emancipatory kind of connotations in your thinking, in your kind of accelerationist view of the world and your your current viewpoints. And so before even going into your current views and, and picking your brain about how you see these things today, I'm just curious if you could kind of mentally go back to the 1990s when you're theorizing all these kind of radical ideas at the beginning. What would you say, like, what was the first kind of crack in that tendency for you? Like, what gave exactly? Was there a particular realization or insight or problem or anomaly in in kind of your viewpoints in the 90s that 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 kind of cracked and, and made you kind of see that all of these radical emancipatory ideas are not going to work? Or how would you explain that? that these things come in waves. I mean, wave motion is crucial to this. There was an extremely exciting wave that was ridden by the CCIU in the early to mid-1990s. You know, the internet was basically arrived in those years. There were all kinds of things going on culturally and technologically and economically that were extremely exciting. And, you know, that just that carried this accelerationist current and made it extremely immediately plausible and convincing to people. Outrageous, perhaps, but, but definitely convincing. Uh, but it was followed, and I wouldn't want to put specific dates on this, really, but I think there was a, an epoch of deep disillusionment, like the... the the, you know, I'd call it the Facebook era. And obviously, for anyone who's kind of coming in any way out of Deleuze and Qatari, for something called Facebook to be the dominant sort of representative of cyberspace is just almost, you know, comically horrible thing to happen. You know, and I just really re- responded to this with such utter prolonged disgust that a certain like a you know deep sedimentary layer of of profound grumpiness you know from a personal point of view was added to this but i don't think it's just a personal thing i mean i think that accelerationism just went into massive eclipse to me what's really at stake in this question is Understanding the nature of ideology, because that's one of the things I'm really interested in today is just what exactly is ideology? What is the most empirically sophisticated way to understand social communities' tendencies to uh, to divide along ideological dimensions, the number of those dimensions, the relationship between those dimensions? I find it very fascinating and important because I think it's uh, that those are the tracks along which right. 
so much of contemporary kind of mass insanity and confusion uh, go down. So it almost seems to me like you listening to you describe your own trajectory, it almost sounds like you're endorsing kind of like a horseshoe theory of ideology, right? This idea that, um, you know, the, the radical left at a certain margin uh, almost has to uh, become right wing to some degree. Uh, that seems to be kind of baked into what you're saying about Deleuze and Guattari's uh, perspective on acceleration that, you know, if the real way to rebel against capitalism is in some sense to be so capitalist that capitalism can't handle it to some degree. Is that how you see it? Kind of? Well, actually, that's not really how I see it, but it, but I think it has an interesting suggestion. And I, and I think you're touching upon this really fascinating and intricate uh, zone in, 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 in making that, suggestion for sure so what's wrong with that to you um okay let, let me see well maybe before trying to immediately sort of uh respond respond precisely to that let me just say that you know a lot of the, there is an actual sort of fabric of discussion obviously very connected to your point around this which comes from the fact that um precisely because of this a uh, surreptitious, insidious strategy that Deleuze and Guattari, I'm going to use them as the kind of uh, the, the epitome of this, um, that we're involved in. Um, because of that strategy, that they have, they have resulted in, in, in a question uh, that has haunted accelerationism from, from its, its birth, which is precisely this thing about, is it a left wing or a right wing? process that we've seen people exploring in stages later and um you know what one the the, the sort of leftist they the, what well, i would say the, the the original leftist formulation of it um before very different from anything that we get in what then becomes called left accelerationism later is that well it's almost uh it's almost like lenin's you know the worse the better so the understanding of it is that, you know, what Deleuze and Guattari are doing, what the accelerationist current coming out of them is doing, is saying the way to destroy capitalism is to um, accelerate it to its limit. Um, and, you know, there's no other, there's no other strategy that is, has any chance of being uh, successful. Um now, you know, is that, oh, so, so then there's a question, well, okay, can we, can we model what we're being said there as a horseshoe, um, that there is a certain kind of possible meeting point of, of kind of hyper-rightists in, in the terms of kind of proponents of capitalism and hyper-leftists as uh, defined as uh, kind of ferocious and take antagonists of capitalism. I mean, I, yes, I will grant, you know, in that construction that, that that's not implausible. That's not implausible. And I, and I think we do see these interesting crossovers. Like, obviously, one figure that I think is sort of on the edge of this um, and of great interest for lots of people working in sort of accelerationism-related areas is this guy uh, who goes by the nick of damn Yehu or if I'm pronouncing that right, Jehu, I don't know. You know, he's an absolute, he's as fundamentalist Marxist as anyone I've ever come across. 
you know, I mean, absolutely fundamentalist, anti-capitalist, you know, proletarian revolution, economistic Marxist. And yet uh, there's a huge zone of um, resonance between his analysis and kind of accelerationist currents that would be seen as being sort of absolutely sort of offensively and unambiguously rightist in orientation. So so I'm saying all of this to say that there's something, look, serious behind what you're saying. It's not like there's, there's nothing there. But I think there's this, the, 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 I have to put this, my, my fourth point on the table, which will bounce back onto this, onto this question, which is the fact that um, I think the, you know, the right accelerationist, uh, commitment that sort of has that feeds into all kinds of later things, um, but but definitely is something already going on in the 1990s. Um, is that the uh, the actual practical social force of uh, conservatism? you know, of what in a certain sense would be called even reaction is the political left. You know, that's what the political left is. The political left is the thing that is set essentially against the um, imperative to accelerate the process. And so, you know, by that, by that definition of leftism, it's really what, then becomes said what I would say I then say as soon as I'm not within a certain strategic context set by the set by I'll say the academy but I think it's not just the academy it's also a sort of set a, a sort of a structure of political and ideological hegemony um that you know it's just misleading to really present this as being a leftist project at all. You're so, you're so against the basic grain, the basic impulse and imperatives of the left to say that, that it's just, you know, sure you'll do it for strategic reasons, but then when you're no longer under that pressure, why would you do it? Oops. Sorry, am I still? Yeah. Um, okay. Well, it's just to say, it's just to say, that, 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 you know, why, why would accelerationism uh, maintain some kind of uh, affinity with allegiance, uh, affection for the left as a, as, a, as a position when it just is in a position to come clean on the situation and just say, look, you know, what the left is, is the the is the counter movement. It's the it's the opposition to the accelerationist process, and you know you get a, so that that's where why I say you know look it's not really a horseshoe. I mean it's only a horseshoe if you continue to define the left in terms that don't actually make any sociological sense. You know if you think about the left and the right as both superficial, strategic social, you know, molar, molar formations, um, then they're really like kind of mutually reinforcing paranoiac simplifications, trying to deal with, uh, 
the unbearable anxieties of economic acceleration. And so like if you try to do either one of them too seriously, you'll you might find yourself popping out into the other one. But that's that's not for any deep meaningful reason, but simply because they're both diluted or strategically simplified, ultimately disingenuous tracks along which contemporary society kind of sends people down or something like that. Right. Yes, I mean, I, I think look, the, 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 the terminology of the left and the right, for, for anyone as you who is fascinated by the question of ideology, it's completely indispensable. You know, and there's, it, I think it's like, um, I totally see why people get dissatisfied with that, you know, um, that language and say we have to move beyond this or this, this terminology has ceased to be useful. Um, but I have a sense of its kind of extreme resilience. You know, I, do, I don't see us ever stopping talking about the left and the right. It's always going to come back. Um, in, in sort of, I, I, I call it the, the prime political dimension, you know, that, that there, is, there is a basic dimension with left and right polarities that everyone returns to. You know, after their wanderings and complications and all kinds of ideological currents themselves have a kind of a, a strategic interest in either muddying the water or trying to get people to rethink what left and right mean. But in the end, people come back to this basic dimension of ideological possibility. And, and I think it is the one that captures the accelerationist tendency most most clearly i think that you know on the on the right end of that is uh is something like you know the kind of a cab extreme laissez-faire manchester liberal anarcho-capitalism um a, a, a kind of commitment to the to the maximum deregulation of the of the technological and economic process and on the opposite extreme is a set of constituencies that um, seek in various ways to, I mean, you know, polemically, I would say just like words like impede and obstruct and constrain and whatever. But I mean, I realize that's, that's, that's just my rightism being put on display. And there's other ways of saying that to, to regulate it or control it or to humanize it. Or, you know, I don't, I, I, I won't, I won't try and, uh, you know, do a, a sufficiently sophisticated ideological Turing test on myself to try and get th that right. You know, I'll let I'll let other people say say how they want to say that. But but I don't think there's any real. Um, it's not really questionable. You know, which of those impulses is in play, and and I think that then, you know, it's on that dimension that uh, so-called left accelerationism you know, is left. I mean, it's leftist because it is basically um, in a position of deep scepticism about the capitalist process. It's trying, it's accelerationist <laughs> only insofar as it thinks that there is some other, I would say, magical source of acceleration that is going to be located some somewhere outside that basic motor of modernity, you know, they gesture towards the fact that things were somehow still accelerating 
when you just you know chuck the actual motor of acceleration in in the scrap and and i think that that is the left i think you know left accelerationism is left in a way that is robust that everyone will recognize they definitely are in fact genuine leftists they're not playing games like that and and they catalyze obviously a, a, a right uh, opposition as soon as they do that because they're, they're already skipping the prime political dimension they're on the left pole of it they're you know in an in antagonism to them one is defining the, the right pole of that same spectrum okay so i mean you would it sounds like you would basically say that Deleuze and Guattari are not really leftists. In other words, they might be writing from a kind of leftist milieu and they might have some sort of leftist kind of connotations. But the core of their project is not leftist because no. if, you, if you think leftism is basically the, you know, leftism to you is basically the position of trying to slow down the accelerator. Yes, I think that project is anti-leftist. I think, you know... I think it's anti-leftist, but smuggled in in this insidious thing of subverting the Marxist tradition from inside. And I think the Marxist tradition is easy to subvert from inside because the Marxist tradition is based upon an analysis of capitalism that has many very valuable uh, aspects to it. And, and, and as soon as you are, are doing that, then you are describing the motor of acceleration. And, you know... Uh, once you then make the further move that Deleuze and Quattari do, and Marx obviously at times does too, of actually uh, embracing the kind of propulsion that that motor is is generating, then you're there. I mean, you've already crossed the line. Okay. Okay. I think that 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 clarifies things substantially. I think that's interesting. Um, it because you also said that you think that there are kind of cyclical. Um, tendencies in ideological manifestations. You you seem to be kind of referring to the possibility that in some times and places, the you know to pursue a radically critical philosophy will tend to uh, you'll you'll tend to find yourself on the left, but at other times and places that might be more of a right wing manifestation. Is that is that what you meant? Yes. Uh, I, well, I, I, nothing so articulate, but I, but I, I think the question is extremely interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I'm not going to put a sort of dogmatic response to that down. Sure. At yeah, the no, moment, I, but I, but, but I think the conversation could go down a huge, extremely interesting track guided entirely by that question that you've just raised, really, which would be, uh, w- which would be, does the, um, does the history of critique, um, you know, pass through these strange processes of um, ideological oscillation? And I, and I think there definitely does seem to be some indication of that. Mm. You know, I think that uh, I think that there's a lot of work that has to be done to really bring out the pattern really rigorously and, and clearly, but but. I'm absolutely convinced that uh, that Marxism, uh, in its kind of in its core of, of maximum sort of theoretical potency, is is definitely a working of critique in its strict Kantian technical philosophical 
sense. Um, and obviously, at certain at, at a certain point, that seemed to have um, obvious anti-capitalist implications. And and I think that in Deleuze and Guattari's work, that does flip. But it but it's but it's also complicated because, in a certain sense, Deleuze and Guattari are only are only excavating something that is already happening in Marx. I mean, they're, they're, not, they're not really distancing themselves in any, in any way from what Marx is doing, or even from his configuration of critique. They're simply, they're simply uh, elevating it to, a, to an unprecedented point of lucidity. So, you know, maybe mm-hmm. what you're saying is that there is a kind of a subterranean rightist implication, even in what seems to be at a certain point in history, it's, it's absolute antithesis. Well, how about this? What if we step out of the, the ideological question? And let me ask you um, a sort of question embedded in some of this, but without the ideological fetters. Um, specifically, I want to go back a little bit to all of these uh, notions and ideas that you spent a lot of time theorizing, uh, which I mentioned before in, in the nineties. Um, what I just aside from the ideological confusions, what I'm curious is, you know, there's a lot of pretty concrete uh, mechanisms or, or tactics, if you will, that you theorize in, in those early writing, in those early writings, um, ways that people can, basically re-engineer social reality. I referred to some of them before. I, I, I won't go over them again. But I, what I want to ask you is just empirically, like has your, has your empirical model of society changed in such a way that you, those, those kind of tactical um, ideas of re-engineering social reality that you developed in the 90s, do you, do you believe that they no longer work or you were wrong to think that they worked? Or is it just that, those tactical um, abilities that humans have and uh, to, to kind of uh, alter social reality, you think maybe they, you, you, you would, you would maintain that those um, ideas still empirically describe, you know, real, real possibilities in, in kind of uh, available to, to people, but that perhaps, you know, they're just not being pursued for idiosyncratic reasons or so, I'm curious, like, wh- how you see that. Um, yeah, okay. I think there's two dimensions. There's two dimensions to this question. That, uh, both, are, both are very interesting. Um, so on one level, there, there's a question of um, tactical, let's say, I'll just repeat your language, various types of tactical potential. But uh, let me just, you know, I, I want to just... Um, abstract them from any attribution of a subject because that's because that's what we're going to then get onto in the, on the flip side of this so which which complicates things now but and if we can do that if we can just uh, of, of a subject you know i think because on one side we're talking about the question of uh, humanism you know in its in its widest sense you know who who is it who's doing this stuff or or whatever i mean and in a way you formulated the question it's very much right. like individuals or groups you know conceived as agents in a, in right. a kind of relatively conventional way are, are using or exploiting these these certain sort of t- 
tactical opportunities, which therefore serve them as tools. You've got a clear kind of teleological structure there. Um, you know, uh, coming along with that, therefore, you have some kind of notion of uh, political guidance at the level of these kind of agents, whether individual or collective, um, um, that is that is in, in some position of, of, of mastery over over their tools or equipment or, or, or resources. Um, so, so, you know, to divide it down mm -hmm. by this, the second question, the second aspect is obviously, I think, much more complicated. The, the first aspect, I think, I'd straightforwardly say, you know, that absolutely, there's absolutely no need to withdraw from this. Oh, damn it, what's going on? Sorry. Uh, sorry, I thought I had a technical hitch there. Um, that, that, you know, this is partly back to this whole Facebook, this Facebook slump, is, is the negative of this, but I think we're, we've, we've come out right. of that into an absolutely uh, incandescent, you know, new phase of technological and economic possibility, driven by what's you know this this fundamental dynamic vector of the of the internet, uh, you know, the sort of so that the, the basic socio historical conditions right now are every bit as uh, exciting as anything that was of, was around in the 1990s, um, totally. And, and I would obviously say, you know, these blockchain technologies, I mean, they mm. were envisaged in some sort of extremely abstract philosophical sense, I'd say in the 1990s. You know, everyone, everyone thought um, that, who was looking at these issues at all, everyone could see that what the internet was going to do was produce these distributed structures that escaped... Uh, the the kind of um, established structures of of governance that would be in some uh, insurrectionary sense apolitical, mm. you know. And you look back at some of this early, uh, you know, cypherpunk and right. crypto anarchist writings, you know, Tim May, people like that, and you know, they they catch a, a hell of a lot of their stuff and what it's gonna and what it's gonna mean. And I think people were seeing that in the late 1990s and then they lost it uh and you know the internet just looked like this extremely sad opportunity for kind of this narcissistic implosion back into the most pathetic forms of subjectivity and then we've had a uh an absolutely incredible resurgence of of massively exciting uh processes in in the last a few years, the last decade, maybe you say. I don't know when, how you would date it exactly. Um, so that's all easily said, and uh, you know, I, I would. There's, I, I'm not. I haven't at all become um, skeptical about about those kind of uh, processes. But where I've always been skeptical is with the structures of agency that are supposedly employing employing these things. Um, and you know, I what. <laughs> You know, the big, I, I'm sorry if I'm relapsing back into kind of ideological terminology you're hoping to escape on there. But, but, you know, my sense of just absolute um, That's okay. distancing from the left is that I think it has a massive myth, a hu massive humanist myth about the fact that it, that, you know, there are these human agents, they can be trusted in the final analysis to have sound 
political orientation. We should listen to them. We should trust their political judgments and instincts, you know, um, and that all of this technological and economic resources properly belong in a state of te teleological subordination beneath their political projects. You know, and so you have this whole thing about like praxis is on top. And, you know, capitalism, to, to summarize it, the, the, the kind of technological and economic materials are subordinated in principle, even, even before you have your, you know, your revolutionary suppression of capitalism, you have a, you have a theoretical suppression because you're thinking of it as just a toolkit to be put in the hands of various kinds of human agents uh, to pursue their projects. And, and as you've already said, you know, that's not, for me, a new problem. I mean, all of this, the, 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 the human, that's the human security system. I don't trust the human security system. You know, it's not my friend. I'm not trying to empower it. I'm not, I'm not sort of um, cheering it on. I, I don't want it to kind of, right. you know, improve its position of mastery in any way. I don't see capitalism as its toy or tool. You know, so my, my relation to that is just utterly Well, that's very interesting because so basically it sounds like what you're saying is that all of the stuff you were thinking about in the 90s trying to theorize, you know, these um, – what I think a lot of people would would say are pretty, uh, you know, they have a left wing flavor, a, a very kind of emancipatory kind of uh, motivation or drive or connotation or I, I don't know what exactly you want to call it. But these very emancipatory seeming ideas that you're theorizing in the 90s, you actually have not um, disavowed them at all. Uh, and, and interestingly, you're kind of saying that if I hear you correctly, you're saying that you actually think they might be, you know, these sorts of opportunities for the, the, you know, alteration of social reality through these kinds of tactics might actually be more salient now than ever as we come out of this kind of web 1.0 or 2.0 slump. Um, so that's, that's very interesting uh, that, that, but, but, but sorry, Justin, if I can just in, interrupt sure. you for one minute, because again, you know, this is a two-sided thing because yes, I, I, I'll nod along to everything you're just saying there, but the, but the, but, but, you know, the language of emancipation right. is fine with me, you know, but what is being emancipated? Right. I mean, so, you know, already in the 1990s, my, my interest is in the emancipation of the means of production. I, I am not, right. Uh, I haven't zero commitment to emancipation in any way um, uh, defined by our kind of dominant political discourses. You know, I'm not interested in emancipating human groups, emancipating the human species to reach its species being, to emancipate human individuals. None of, none of that to me is of the slightest interest. Um, so, you know, in using this word of emancipation, you know, I sure, as I say, I will totally nod along to it. If what is meant by that is, uh, I would now say, capital autonomization. You know, that, that's, that's, I don't think, something that isn't already there in the 1990s, but it's something that I think is, you know, I, I'm no longer interested in, in, in playing with... Um, weird academic games about this and, and pretending, you know, that this is the same thing as, as, 
as what the left really means when they're talking about emancipation. I don't think it is. I think what, what the left means by emancipation right. is freedom from capital autonomization. Uh, you know. Right. I see. I see. Yes. I, I definitely see the, um, the conceptual landmines here. Uh, the, the way that certain words here seem to kind of have certain ideological affiliations that you're very keen to, uh, you know, be on guard against. So I, I think I, I understand you clearly. I guess where I'm coming from, though, and, and, and I think this is a really important point, is that people who read, you know, your work and read accelerationism and, and are aware of this sort of school of thought, you know, th- there is a, a very popular kind of interpretation in which it's seen as, oh, accelerationism is that school of thought that says, basically, um, you should just accept the reality of capitalism. And not only should you just accept, you know, the reality of capitalism, but you should more or less accept and even kind of uh, push forward its increasingly kind of brutal uh, tendencies. And, and so that's obviously for a lot of people, it's an, that's a non-starter. Um, but what, so the reason that I'm interested in, in the questions I'm asking right now is because I think that that common way of seeing accelerationism is really, really misguided because on the one level, there's everything you're saying that about how, yes, accelerationism does mean the, the foreclosure of human agency and, and the subject and the, um, you know, increasing autonomization of, of capital and, and, and a lot of these things that, you know, in the, in the popular imagination are associated with kind of oppressive, uh, uh, dynamics. But what, what I remain very interested in trying to understand and also trying to kind of explain and, and model is that what a lot of people see as this kind of oppressive, pessimistic, um, uh, horror show. And, and in some oh, sense, sure. you, you kind of, uh, you kind of play that up a little bit when you talk about things like horrorism. That's sort of a separate sideline. But, um, what I'm interested in is actually there, there is a different way of, of reading the same empirical phenomena. Yes, it's desubjectifying. Yes, it is capital autonomization. And yes, th- there will be really brutal consequences. But at the same time, if what you're really interested in is, you know, if you see the world through categories such as freedom and, you know, liberation and emancipation and kind of escape from oppression. You know, if, if that is how you see the world, well, actually the accelerationist perspective still has a lot for you to be interested in. There's still in some sense, a lot for you to do. And you're right. That's, that's, I'm kind of lapsing into a humanistic language, which is, you know, just an unfortunate um, convenience and, and you're, and you're right. You have to be careful to not kind of reproduce, uh, or, or resuscitate naive notions of the human subject. Um, but correctly understood these processes of, um, you know, what we might call whatever, uh, K war or, uh, Lemurian time war or, or hacking the human security system, all of these sorts of tactics that you very richly um, kind of help people to see their way into in your early texts, those are still there. And those are things that human beings who feel oppressed today can do. And if, and maybe it's not the naive human subject that's going to be doing it. Maybe it's actually going to be kind of tearing asunder the human subject in the very act of doing it. But my point is simply, and this is what I wonder if you agree with, that that, whatever that is, 
it's as close as we can get as human beings to whatever it is we've some of us have been you know calling with uh, under the labels of 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 freedom or emancipation or liberation um that that there are still things we can do in this accelerationist paradigm that are a lot like what people had in mind when they whenever they whenever they've talked about liberation and 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 freedom that's that's kind of the uh, a really important uh set of upshots from the accelerationist worldview that I am extremely kind of interested in and, and I'm actively pursuing. And I find it very actually kind of, I do find it liberating. I find it actually energizing and propelling in a way that I consider to be emancipatory. And I think there's lots of research to be done on how to, uh, how to do those things and how to work those things out. Um, but a lot of people can't see that because they, they think this whole accelerationist thing is just a kind of reactionary, um, capitulation to everything that they see as being, uh, terrible and oppressive. Does that make sense? I, I wonder. Yes, no, that whole thing. I think it's like, it's an extremely rich field, you know, and, and I mean, as, as you obviously know, because of your deep involvement in it, I mean, the accelerationist landscape right now is absolutely extraordinary, you know, in, in terms of the incredible stuff people are doing. Um, you know, there's a whole flourishing of just fantastic, uh, accelerationist resources and blogs and discussions and um, it's 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 never it's never remotely been in this in this state of, of flourishing and the kind of um, the kind of uh, questions that you're raising just then I think are very much you know integral to that and 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 being thrashed out very much. Uh, by all kinds of people within these different interlocking, interacting strains of, of, of accelerationist um, theory. So that, so for sure, that that uh, conversation, I think, is it's not only that it it's interesting and to be encouraged, but I think it's probably absolutely inevitable, um, and you know, something that we can just confidently predict is going to just be one of these explosive explosive um dynamics um okay so yes i mean there's all kinds of yeah i mean i would tend to put myself uh, predictably you know on the dark side of that whole ecology of mm -hmm. discussion because i you know i because it just comes back to this so a set of questions about humanism the human animal um you know, it's kind of ideological sort of uh, self-aggrandizement and what is going, what is going on in that. Um, and, you know, so I, I guess I, I'm sort of drifting somewhere cl very close to agreement with you if, in saying something like, um, you know, true emancipation as something that is just intensely and really uh, produced corresponds strictly to a process of dehumanization. You know, that would be the way I would, I would say it, in trying to be in maximum resonance with, with uh, what I took it that you were saying there. Okay. Um, well, I think that that's actually a really nice and relatively neat way to, uh, perhaps wrap up that segment of the conversation then. Maybe we should uh, not beat a, 
horse, as it were, and move on a little bit. If no, you're not, no, if you're no, not too tired, that is, are totally you happy fine. to kind of, yeah, I mean, look, I think that without cool. wanting to uh, sort of seize the steering wheel, uh, it seems to me like this is a really good mm-hmm. place to to go into the sort of artificial intelligence discussion. Um, because, you know, I because I think that the kind of problems and, and questions that you were just raising are obviously extremely pertinent in that, again, that huge field that I think, it sort of intersects with accelerationism in a, in a, in a huge way and is it precisely sort of uh, haunted by the same, the same kind of terrors uh, of, of kind of oppression of, you know, whatever is wrapped under this umbrella term of unfriendly AI, which is, which is kind of an update on a lot of the kind of old sort of uh, old terrors of what, what capitalism is delivering for us. Um, and, you know, obviously has, again, cuts across all these questions about agency, human identity, uh, the, the kind of um, the, our definition of, of, of intelligence and subjectivity. So, so it seems that we just, you know, are right there already at this stage in the, in the discussion. Okay, sure. Yeah. Do you, is there a particular point about AI that you think feeds in directly to what we were just talking about? Well, if I can just backtrack a tiny bit, I think there's one point about this sure. whole AI landscape that, that you know, we, we reached right at the beginning of this whole discussion, which is that the model of intelligence explosion, as it comes out of the kind of more, I think, I think rigorous but still speculative side of this, of this artificial intelligence uh, world, and I'm thinking obviously particularly of this amazing essay by I.J. Good, just called it. Uh, sorry, I'm going to forget the name now, embarrassingly enough. It's been blotted out. The, oh, that's okay. uh, the first intelligent machine, yeah, sorry, I, 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 I won't try and do it. But he launches the, 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 the term um, intelligence explosion in that essay. Um, and, you know, it's, it's an extremely good fit for the kind of core, the core commitment of accelerationism. And intelligence explosion is the name for the sort of thing that um, um, accelerationism is, is looking at. And this notion is obviously controversial within the whole AI discussion. I don't think anyone would doubt its importance, but there are definitely people who have, have questioned it and questioned its its possibility. So there's a certain way in which I think accelerationism finds itself committed automatically on one side of those internal debates around intelligence explosion in the, in the AI camp. So th- there's a popular kind of image, I would say, of the intelligence explosion, uh, in particular, in particular uh, the, the, the possibility of uh, catastrophic failure mode in which basically superintelligence uh, sort of one fine day in the near future, something clicks into place and suddenly there's a kind of rapid takeoff. That, that's, I think, a, a picture that has been uh, put into a lot of people's minds in, in, in large part through Bostrom's influential book. You know, he, he, he outlines a bunch of possible pathways. Um, but I think, now, I think now when people think of, you know, really cra- catastrophic possibilities, they, this is something that kind of uh, commonly comes to mind. And something that I think about a lot, I've thought a lot about kind of in connection to, to your work 
is I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very skeptical to be honest of, of that, of that picture of the situation, because I think if you look at capitalism as in, in the kind of light that you do, in, in other words, if you see capitalism as this kind of, uh, pan historical, almost substrate of reality itself as this kind of cybernetic, um, you know, capitalism is almost in the nature of things in, in, in your model. If, if, uh, correct me if, if you see it differently, but that's kind of how, how I read you. If you think of, uh, intelligence, uh, as this, um, how, how should I put this? It, it's almost like you almost see, uh, all of human history as, um, a kind of intelligence explosion and that capitalism as we know it, is already this kind of uh, long-term explosive historical process. And so it, it's always kind of seemed to me that, I mean, I take, I take the, uh, the, the very catastrophic malignant failure modes of, of superintelligence very seriously, but it seems to me like you could say it's already happening in the form of capitalism. In other words, it's kind of where it's where I'm driving at. Uh, and I, I feel like there's a lot of, reason to read your work as kind of saying that, but I'm not sure at all if you agree with that or, or not. What do you think? Well, what, what I would say, I mean, I think it, it, it comes down again, just to these very, very basic cybernetic diagrams to do with positive feedback. And, and that, and that, um, you know, one sort of, uh, image that it's, that's, it's entirely satisfactory image, you know, once it's, once it's accepted that it is, you know, in a certain sense, figurative is is obviously this of a of a of a critical nuclear reaction. So you 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 have a pile of uh, radioactive rods, you know, that are damped down by by kind of uh, graphite containment rods, and you you start pulling out those graphite rods, and at a certain point, it goes critical, and and you get an explosion. Which is obviously, it's just absolutely, it's not a metaphor, but it's a positive feedback process. It just is a positive feedback process that passes through some threshold and, and goes critical. And, and so I would say, you know, th that's the sense where capitalism has always been there. It's always been there as a pile with the potential to go critical. But it didn't go critical until the Renaissance, until the dawn of modernity, when for reasons that are interesting, you know, enough graphite rods get pulled out and the thing becomes this self-sustaining um, explosive process. Um, so, so in certain sense, the kind of, a lot of the actual fabric, the social historical fabric is actually a containment system. And I, I think that that containment system had a failure mode in a renaissance you know i think i think that the you know if we if we're flipping i'm just a slight uh dip back into the kind of hyper ideological space for a minute is that is that uh, what what the extreme kind of what i call paleo reactionaries get right is that they they totally see that you know they they obviously I, I share nothing of their kind of mournful uh, sort of affection for, for, the, for the medieval period, but I think they're totally right to say that, that there was a catastrophic failure 
that unleashed this explosive process and, and that is what modernity is from from the perspective of the ancien regime you know what any social system is for is to stop this nuclear pile going off you know you look at sort of chinese civilization and you say well what is it really doing what's it for it's you know from a certain perspective it's a capitalism containment structure that obviously worked better in this in this traditionalist sense than the european one did the european one was too fractured it was too subject to a whole bunch of wild uncontrollable influences um uh, you know sort of unprecedented un a set of unprecedented feedback structures kicked off that no one was in a position to to master in europe and so um you know, we get capitalism and modernity in Europe, and capitalism and modernity is brought to China by Western gunboats. It's not that they, it's not like they're bringing a, a gift. What they're bringing is they, they're coming over to pull the goddamn graphite containment rods out, you know, from outside. I mean, that, that's what that process of Chinese modernization is. It's a, it's a process of the, of the indigenous Chinese process of containment being dismantled from outside until it then obviously in a way no less spectacular than the one we've seen in the west then goes into this self-sustaining modernist eruption basically um basically in the early 1980s okay so that, that that's really interesting and i i really like your vivid kind of metaphor of the the radioactive uh, rods and the the containment system. I, I think that that really helps someone picture that what's at stake. Um, so, does is this all to say that do you think all of the people today who are talking about AI alignment and uh, basically the people that are trying to ensure that if and when there's a super intelligence takeoff, that it won't be catastrophic? Do you view those efforts as doomed? Yes. I mean, look, catastrophic, obviously, again, is a, is a word that's going to wander all over the place, isn't it? And I, I'm, a, I'm a massive critic of the most popular catastrophist models, you know, epitomized by, I think, honestly, this pitifully idiotic uh, paperclipper model that, you know, has been, was popularized by Yudkowsky, that uh, Bostrom still is attached to, that, you know, is very, very... Um, widespread in, in in the literature and and i think for reasons maybe we can go into at some point it, it's just fundamentally mistaken so that notion of catastrophe as basically something very stupid happens as a result of an intelligence explosion i i find deeply implausible um but but catastrophic in the technical sense you know as it's used in catastrophe theory is a point of there being some trigger point where you enter into a, a self-feeding positive dynamic, I think is 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 absolutely right. And and as I say, you know, the the reason that I sort of came back to the history of capitalism is, is that, as you say, you know, this is all about the history of capitalism. But that doesn't mean that we're not talking about catastrophic failure modes on the. Oh, on the contrary, it's precisely why we're talking about catastrophic failure modes, because we've seen in the case of modernity that that is what happens. 
That's what, you know, again, to get back to another language, that, that's what liberation looks like. What liberation looks like is pulling out enough of the containment structure that this new self-feeding dynamic process erupts. Um, and, and so, again, I think that the kind of, you know, I think that there's these kind of reactionary voices that say, you know, when liberals talk about liberalism, they're really talking about some kind of disaster. I don't think that's a trivial or stupid thing to say. I think, you know, there's obviously room for very different sets of um, ev evaluative responses around that. But I think there's a thought there that's actually profoundly realistic and I definitely think is more realistic than the kind of... Um, the kind of facile liberalism that just says, you know, um, you know, everything just gets better and better and better. I mean, I think that that's that perspective from which things are getting better is, is just deeply artificial and, and, and constructed. It doesn't correspond to real, any real agents. You know, the real agents are, uh, the, the significant agents are the, are, the, are the guys who are running the containment structure. And for them, disaster, a disaster, a civilizational disaster. Um, you know, and, and I think the wig, the wig spin on that is kind of deeply disingenuous. Right. So, okay. So that, that's really rich. Now, one thing I'm thinking about here though, is that how you, how you read this problem of intelligence explosion, say the difference between, you know, Nick Bostrom's book and the the larger historical narrative that you get from 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 your writings, let's say, you know, the difference is really significant in terms of almost like cosmology. You know, like it, it's 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 a fundamentally different picture of of what human society and human history is. And and in some sense the history of of the universe even everything people like Bostrom are highlighting right now has been a possibility baked into the nature of, of reality. Basically, it's basically the cybernetic kind of substrate of, of, you know, the evolution of everything that we've ever known. So long as there has been intelligent processes, there has been the specter of positive feedback of intelligent processes that take off and leave behind all carbon-based dead weights. All of this stuff gets strangely close to uh, traditional religious worldviews. Have you ever noticed that, or have you ever, have you ever thought about that? Oh, I think that you know this—the the fact that people now are seeing more and more of what is happening in terms of religious lineages is a hugely important and extremely. Uh, in its in its core realistic development. So yes, uh, absolutely. I, I I think this has been a huge thing. I've seen really in the last decade this massive massive explosion of saying, "Hey, look at this! Isn't it just actually, you know, intelligible within within a particular uh, religious lineage?" You know, the very frontiers of science, the very frontiers of philosophy, even the very frontiers of you know, the radical, critical, kind of anti-institutional sorts of projects and kind of traditional religious worldviews, they're all kind of converging, it seems, in, in, in a kind of shared 
underlying model of reality, you could almost say, because we are rapidly and more rapidly than ever approaching a place, approaching a limit. And we don't know what's behind that wall, but whatever it is that's behind that wall was something there from the beginning. In some sense, it's, you know, you talk a lot about how um, on some level you can't really justify talking about the the past causing the future. And that on, on some level of abstraction, um, you can just as well say that the, the future causes the past. If you take those ideas seriously, and, and I think all of this stuff about intelligence is uh, making us take them in, increasingly serious. You know, you have people like Bostrom who takes very seriously, and, and lots of other people also who take very seriously the simulation argument, the very possibility that perhaps everything we know in some sense, I interpret that as as having some sort of creator in some sense. Um, all, in other words, there are all of these very, very strange loops in which, you know, the most hardcore rationalist line of thought right. uh, seems to converge with, uh, yeah, basically very uh, traditional models of the world that, you know, in some sense, yeah. I think early pre-modern human beings always kind of had a sense that, always had a sense that, you know, our ability to intelligently exploit the environment was going to end really badly. From the time anomaly, the, 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 the relation of science and religion, um, the, this, this final, your, your end note there about things ending really badly. Are you see, I think what this is in a way to regress a little bit in our, in our discussion, but I think one of the things that is coming into crisis is... Um, our sense of the relationship between humanity and intelligence. And I think there is a certain, there's a certain way that that became, that, that couple became very thoroughly soldered together, even in positions, even in places where it seemed unlikely. So, so for instance, you know, for certainly popular modes of theology, um, the, the notion of a supreme cosmic intelligence as, as a deity comes accompanied with this massive anthropomization of what that being will be like. So it's in some sense recognizable. So, you know, where created in its image. There's all these resonances between God and man that sort of cements this notion that there's some profound relationship between between the anthropomorphic and the and the intelligent, um, and I think that this this structure has been being really badly pulled apart by modernity and 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 has, has been coming to sh to shreds. And people have obviously seen that happening long ago. Um, and the, the discussions that we're having around artificial intelligence, I think, are, are deeply connected. With that, I think, I, I, for instance, the notion of friendly AI, I'm not saying it's reducible to an anthropomorphic, a kind of new synthetic anthropomorphic model of intelligence, but it's not completely separate either. You know, I think, I think it's anthropomorphic pretty much to the same degree as, as theology is anthropomorphic. And, and, you know, a sophisticated theologian will say, oh, it's only, you know, the vulgar, uh, low-grade versions of our religious tradition that actually anthropomorphize 
superhuman intelligences. And the same way someone in the AI will say, oh, it's only the kind of, it's only a vulgarity, a vulgarization to, to think that we're anthropomorphizing this notion of a friendly AI. But, but in both cases, it's actually the predominant cultural phenomenon is the anthropomorphization. And, and there's a kind of fringe of sophistication that can, with some credibility, say it's not fallen into that culture. Um, but, you know, where humans find themselves, like there's this, I'm sure you're familiar with, I think, utterly brilliant little remark by um, Elon Musk, where he says, I won't actually get it exactly right, it's, it would be unfortunate if the human species was to turn out to be the biological bootloader for artificial intelligence. Now, I think there's a huge amount going on in there. You know, all our, our terrors are going uh, on in there. All of this kind of notions of, of what a catastrophic failure in this domain is going to be like. Um, but also what you see happening here is this rending of the kind of fusion of humanity and intelligence, where suddenly you begin to think, well, you know, and a lot of people are explicitly now thinking this, well, hang on a minute, you know, actually we're not abstract intelligence. Uh, you know, intelligence, our intelligence is supposed to be instrumental in relation to our humanity. We are a specific biological species with a set of interests that are determined in terms of species preservation, not in terms of intelligence optimization. Um, and maybe intelligence optimization is runs, you know, collides in an extremely uh, vicious way with our biological species interests in terms of human self-preservation, whether, you know, as something recognizably human, whatever that means, or, you know, at the extreme, like you say, even as a carbon-based life form, or as something whose basic mode of reproduction passes through uh, the DNA molecule. I mean, all of these things are open to, you know, open to a whole variety of extreme scenarios. Um, but it, it makes perfect sense now for someone to say, look, I, I am, you know, what science is telling me is that I am a transmission device for a certain kind of uh, a hereditary piece of uh, DNA code. And that's where my interests lie. You know, I don't... I don't have any interest at all in the optimization of intelligence insofar as it's going to kind of move, move the whole reproduction of, of complex chemistry on this planet onto a new reproductive substrate. That would be, that would be, that's extinction. You know, that's a disaster. Um, but it's a disaster that could still be um, intelligence optimizing. It's a disaster that could still be in, 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 in cold, in cold neutral terms, the most glorious thing that has yet happened in planetary history. And it's entirely, it's entirely compatible that that, that that could be utterly consistent with, with the, the, the worst nightmare in our biological history as a species. Right. Or again, I mean, it, it's, it's all extremely religious because it's like, it could very well be that, you know, the greatest catastrophe of the species is also, you know, the, the saving grace and the greatest glory of the species. You know, I mean, these are all, these are all uh, notions that are 
embedded in the world religions, sure. right? That at a, at, a, at a low resolution for sure. But um, you know, it, it, I find it very, I find it especially interesting that it's like whatever is going on, it we can't help but be we're constantly falling back onto this vocabulary of it. You know, it it seems like there's something there's something else doing the work that's not yeah. human agency. When you think about how unfashionable religion is in the West, um, I find that I find a symptom there. I think that there's something symptomatic going on there that might be a bit of a clue as to the mass kind of ideological insanity um, that's that's kind of wreaking havoc on the public sphere today. You know, rationalism is obviously the order of, of, of the day. It's the order of modernity. And on the one hand, it seems like if we have any chance of navigating what is coming down the pike and, and what is already underway with the explosion that is modernity, um, it, seem, it seems undeniable that, you know, intelligence is a valuable asset, uh, an undeniable necessary asset in figuring out how to, how to survive, how to, how to live, whatever, however you want to think about it. Um, and yet it also seems to be that this kind of, um, headlong collapse into unbridled rationalism is also the cause of so much of our, um, you know, so much of what horrifies us. When you take these things together, the fact that religious or traditional worldviews are being very strangely vindicated by the frontiers of science and critical philosophy. Um, but you also take note that people are kind of rabidly, um, how should I say, afraid of taking religion seriously. Um, I, I, I think that that is kind of a, a symptomatic knot, if you will, of what is kind yes. of uh, driving people so insane Yes, I mean, I, I would just say I, I think this is it's it's at a kind of slight diagonal to what you're saying. It, it, it's definitely not just a translation of it because I, I, I agree also with something that I think you know that that you're you're saying that, that uh, you know there is a there is an archaic well well partly we're back on I think these these strange these strange loops you know and there's there's one loop that definitely goes back to the most kind of the most archaic forms of religiosity are found at the end. You know, they're not, time is not, is not simply taking us away from those things at all. So I, I agree with that. But I think that, but the diagonal to that is also um, a set of revisions to, to a lot of public conversations or uh, niche public conversations that have come, for, certainly as far as I'm concerned, and I think generally, actually, uh, I don't think this is just from my perspective, from Mencius Moldbug's work, you know, which is basically, if I was, if someone was going to say to me, well, what really, you know, what is he mostly talking about? He's mostly talking about religion. And he's mostly talking about the fact that, you know, secularism is cladistically religious. You know, it's not that it's it's not that it's simply it simply put religion behind it. It's a particular type of development within a religious tradition, so that you get other people now. I mean, I see so many people say this that you know it's become difficult to uh, sort of 
attribute it to anyone in particular, but the claim that um, atheism, as it is generally understood in Western societies, is a particular variant of uh, extreme Protestantism. Um, you know, it's not at all outside, it's not escaped our religious tradition. It's just, a, it's just the currently dominated uh, phase of our religious tradition. Um, and I think I'm seeing lots of people beginning to move into this mode of, uh, of analysis. It's really like, um, I think what's collapsing is a certain kind of extremely smug notion of transcendent secular rationalism, <clears throat> as if it was really, as if it's really looking at the world's cultures from outside and above, you know, in some, some position of perfect neutrality. Whereas instead, it's massively historically and culturally embedded, and it's looking out of its own very specific, cladistic branch of cultural development at, you know, other parts of the, of the kind of planet's cultural shrubbery. And, I, and, you know, something, it's not that that doesn't have roots. I mean, you could say that the whole, you know, the whole crisis that was visited upon the West by the fact that, um, by the introduction of a comparative religion, where for the first time people couldn't help but see their own religious tradition as something that was relativized by these other religious cultures that were being discovered around the world. You know, it obviously had a very corrosive kind of cultural impact. But I think what's different about this is it really is about losing the sense of um, transcendence completely. You know, there just simply are no perspectives that are not imminent to cultural history. And, you know, once that's taken seriously, then I think the notion that people have put certain religious problems behind them just begins to look, as I said, just to repeat my... Um, my snarky description of it, uh, very smug. Um, and, and it's a kind of smugness that I think is becoming increasingly fragile. And, and, and to loop this right back to what you were saying, I think that that fragility is making people very bad tempered. I think that there's a wide sense in a, in a lot of people that these very basic structures of um, sensibility are disintegrating. Um, they're becoming unsustainable, and that makes people furious, you know, often. Um, they, they, they want to lash out at, at what they worry are the big challenges to it or to things that they think are somehow exhibiting less fragility or uh, as a way of demonstrating the fact that they still have remained in the same place or you know, for all kinds of reasons. I think that, um, you know, when when these basic belief structures enter into a crisis, it, it does produce ex this extreme sort of atmosphere of vituperation and, and uh, resentment that, that I do agree we, we, we're seeing on a huge scale. Hey, everybody. This is where we took a break, and then we resumed a couple weeks later to finish the second half of this session, which is mostly about blockchain.
Well, I, I, th- I think what I want to say is, is really that Bitcoin can be used safely as being the, the carrier of the, of the blockchain. There's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, the, the, the first one is just network effects or first mover advantage, that it just, um, it has installed itself and it's part of the fascination of the thing that obviously it's an open source protocol. Anybody can just take that code and, you know, today launch Bitcoin 2 or whatever uh, that's, that's absolutely indistinguishable from Bitcoin 1 except the history, you know. So the, the history is everything. The fact that, that all, all our Bitcoin has is the fact that it's the first one. It has this first mover advantage. It has these network effects. It's like, why would you move from Bitcoin 1 to Bitcoin 2? Um, you know, it could be made, the clone could be perfect. So there would be absolutely no reason you could say not to, except for this, except for this mass this accumulation of network effects that's, that's already there with the, with the first uh, version of the thing. Okay, right. Um, okay, that makes sense. I kind of just wanted to clarify whether or not you were remarking about specific features of Bitcoin relative to other cryptocurrencies, or if you're more generally really talking about the properties of blockchain itself. Right. And it, it sounds like the well, latter. I think both are really, really. interesting. Um, and, you know, if if you get into the discussion, then you have to... Uh, or you would very quickly start talking about um, other uh, instantiations of the, of the blockchain and, and other altcoins and, and all of this stuff. Definitely that I don't think can be just um, ignored or, or put aside. But, but as I say, I would weight that in the sense that if people are doing that in, in order to somehow um, dismiss the uh, predominance or preeminence of, of Bitcoin, I think that's, that's a mistake. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, okay. insofar as there's a Bitcoin, revol- uh, a blockchain revolution, it's because Bitcoin is going to continue to feature very, very significantly in that. Okay, in- interesting. So maybe we could just dive in right away to the relationship between Bitcoin and philosophy. Because I think that that very idea will sort of confuse or surprise a lot of people. When people think about blockchain or Bitcoin, they think, okay, this is a very interesting and, and potentially very important financial technological innovation. But how on earth could this have implications for philosophy? Right. So maybe you could just uh, help us understand how you see the philosophical implications of Bitcoin. I mean, obviously, in some sense, that's what we'll be unpacking for the better part of this conversation. But just as a kind of first jump into that question, how do you how, do, how did you first make that connection uh, in seeing, you know, philosophical Im- implications here? Well, I think there's there's two sides to this uh, from my point of view that that lock in the importance of the of the topic. Um, one of them is is I think already. A sort of philosophically freighted issue, but but 
to a sort of a second order, which is the fact that this something like Bitcoin is baked into the modernist cake extremely deeply. I mean, you know, that there's been a, the actual possibility of technically instantiating is a set of incredible achievements, technical achievements that have been made. But those achievements that they would be made one way or another has been extremely uh, predictable. Because, because the whole tradition of spontaneous order, you know, in the old sense, the liberal tradition of modernity passing through, you know, sort of notably passing through the, the Scottish Enlightenment and then passing uh, through the Austrian school of economics has had broad schemas for the kind of... Um, technical and economic developments that it, it considers to be, um, in a sense, kind of compelled by modern development that really draw a profile of something very like Bitcoin. And so, I mean, if you look more recently, sort of into the kind of computer age and, and the internet age, you see a lot of sort of uh, old texts about crypto anarchy, um, about the way that um, um, anonymous internet transactions are going to sort of imp impact on society that obviously were formulated before anyone had actually worked out how to make a blockchain. But at the same time, when you get to the blockchain, you have this aha moment of saying, oh, this is... This is what people were seeing. This is the uh, this is the actual realization of something that people were only seeing in much more abstracted terms before that. So that's in the broad sort of in the broad framework of of political economy and political philosophy. I think I think you know Bitcoin is something that you recognize when you, when you see it as 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 having already been in play in a much longer tradition. But I think then for the real sort of more uh, crunchy philosophical side, the argument that I think uh, I would strongly want to make is that there is a, a really powerful isomorphism between, between Bitcoin and critique in its Kantian sense. Uh, and you know, I'll just try and run through that really quickly, and then we can pick pick over it like like vultures later. But um, the main so the main way this I think works is um, you, the sort of most abstract formulation of critique is something like um, objectivity should not be confused with an object and if you can if you can if you make that confusion you're then doing metaphysics and recognizing the error of that move of, of confusing objectivity with an object is basically the, the whole of the critical enterprise and the way that translates across into uh, the technosphere um 
I think it, there's probably several ways, but I'll just reduce it to two. First of all, with the internet itself. And obviously people know in um, broad sort of uh, sociocultural sense, to sociocultural and technological sense, the story of the internet and the fact that it begins from this um, series of strategic military imperatives for a robust communication system that would survive a nuclear exchange. And, and the reason it would, exchange, it would survive a nuclear exchange is because there are no nodes, there are no indispensable nodes in the system. So you can sort of, to an arbitrary degree, take out important nodes in the internet. And of course, if you carry on doing that enough, you will finally eliminate the, the system. But the, but the robustness of the internet is the fact that you have to kind of work a long way down, taking out these hubs uh, successively until you finally get to a point where the thing becomes dysfunctionally shredded and and you know the further down you have to go to do that the more powerful the internet is as a distributed system and you get all the internet effects from that of the fact that it's relatively censorship resistant um that um it offers a lot of autonomy to low-level nodes the fact that it can root around um obstacles because I mean, when when on the internet you root around an obstacle, you just you just emulate a hostile nuclear strike. You just say, you know, I don't want to go past this or that gatekeeper, and I will just I will just assume that they have been vaporized by a foreign nuclear device, and and just go around them some other way. And there's always more of these other ways being brought on stream. All the time. So, with with the internet, the 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 the, the kind of uh, formulated in terms of critique is you you make a metaphysical error if you uh, misidentify the system with any node or group of nodes in the system. So that's the that's the isomorphism between the kind of the, the you know the relation between objectivity and the object, or the media system and the nodes in that system. So the internet is already a materialization, a technological instantiation of critique, and Bitcoin then builds on that and takes it to. Uh, the next stage, and 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 it, um, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto is completely explicit in his in his kind of repeated sort of almost mantra about uh, Bitcoin that it's about uh, bypassing trusted third parties. So that's what you know. The trusted third party in is it in the role in in the in the kind of Bitcoin realized, materialized thought space that a, a, a central commanding hub would be in terms of uh, the internet or the supreme 
metaphysical error of these of these uh, metaphysical objects are for pre-critical philosophy. And um, yeah, so I don't know whether maybe have I? Do you think I've said enough about that to get the basic the basic point of that across? Like the the Bitcoin is a critique of trusted third parties that is that is deeply isomorphic with critique in its kind of rigorized Kantian sense and then with the history of uh, historical and technological instantiation of, of critique. And that's why I think it's a philosophically rich uh, topic. Yeah, that was a excellent sort of opening summary of how you see the philosophical implications. Maybe we could try to unpack it a little bit because I think there's a lot of stuff there that's really kind of fascinating, but won't at all be obvious to a lot of listeners. So, I mean, one thing that I'm kind of thinking about listening to you give that summary is whether or not the story that you tell, which sort of begins with modernity and begins with sort of modern traditions of philosophical critique whether or not the process you're delineating really actually goes back to the beginning of time, as it were, in the sense that, you know, Bitcoin is a more perfect and formal realization of technological and economic dynamics of which the internet was an original kind of best shot given the technological frontier at the time the internet appeared. But the internet was also really just the frontier manifestation of the same phenomenon that the printing press essentially was as well. And then further on down the line of historical time, in other words, especially sort of relating what you're saying now to some of your, your other work and some of the other interesting ideas. I think we, we both might be equally interested in about the nature of capital itself and the nature of right. the nature of kind of the long run. Yeah. The long run nature of, of human history or even life on this planet in some sense, seeing it as this kind of uh, more or less continuous cybernetic evolutionary process. I, I wonder if there's a reason why you begin your discussion with modernity and, and why it would not basically be able to get to why you could not tell one kind of continuous story in the framework that you're presenting or could you? Well, I know you're right that I would be reluctant to do that. Mm. Um, I definitely think that modernity is a singularity um, that um, there's, a, there's a, a huge historical discontinuity involved in it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, I can totally see that that question, that, that that's a controversial uh, argument and our historians obviously treat it, I, I think quite explicitly as a, as a controversial, as a controversial point and people will argue both ways on that. Um, but, you know, the crudest level of response is it just seems to me empirically there is a sort of stark historical discontinuity that happens roughly in the Renaissance um, where it really seems that something new has begun 
to happen. Right. And um, so basically that that thing that's new with modernity, it's very hard to pin down the primary variables because really it's a it's a cluster of variables as you've kind of indicated the very idea of applying human rationality to traditional institutions and thinking about them critically also early capitalism early technological innovations such as you know things like uh you know joint stock corporations and double entry bookkeeping all of these are candidates for you know the key causes that sends modernity off into the exponential takeoff or singularity yes. as you put it but i think it's exceedingly difficult to try and pin down the you know primary variable among all of those variables which was sort of most importantly responsible for the takeoff that that we call modernity they seem to kind of happen more or less in a in a self-reinforcing kind of cluster yes. phenomenon. And I, I th- I'm tempted to make two quite um, disconnected remarks about it. I mean, one is the fact that the arrival of zero in Europe does strike me as overwhelmingly synchronized with the catalysis of modernity now people Mm. obviously say well zero was around a long time so what's so special about the arrival of zero in europe Mm. and i think that's a good and important question to ask and it maybe then bounces us onto the onto the other side of this which is to say which is to put a lot of emphasis on this notion that i think uh, as we've already seen from where we started this conversation is still entirely contemporary and, and it probably intensified right now in a way it's never been before is the notion of the route around, I think mm. is utterly crucial to this. I think that once you, once you really have robust route arounds, you have, you have this process in motion. And I think what you're trying to understand is what, you know, what is it that happened in Europe in the Renaissance with the arrival of zero that, that was different to what had happened in, in India. I, th- I think it's quite clear China had a, a, f- a functional notion of zero. It was obviously uh, so prevalent in the Muslim world that people often even call the, the numeracy and um, the Arab numerals. That, that was certainly how they were received by the West at the time. N- in none of those cultures... Do you get that same uh, dynamic of escape? You know, m- modernity just doesn't isn't able to um, escape from the prevailing s- systems of social organization. And there's something about the European situation. I would say it surely has to have as one crucial component the massive amount of um, uh, regime fragmentation that you find in Europe relative to these other cultures. Right. Um, that it was able to just get out of the box in a way that was, was prevented um, in, in its other social context. Okay, right. So the way you see it is that 
perhaps for contingent historical institutional reasons, it's in Europe that something which human civilization up until then had tried to contain and was able to, to some degree, contain, was able to get out of the box, as you put it. And you think that that is especially uniquely related to the arrival of zero in human kind of mathematical capacities within within Europe. You think that that kind of was a, a profound qualitative rupture that allowed something to escape and something that we've really never been able to put back in the box since then. Uh, yes, I would say that's exactly what I, what I think. And, yeah. and so maybe we could think a little bit about what exactly is that thing that escaped. Because, I mean, I, I guess one plausible candidate would be some, you know, perhaps we just call this intelligence itself. I don't know. The, the crucial notion, I think, is intelligence production. Um, you know, there's always been intelligence kicking around. Um, but what I think is specifically modern is the fact that you're actually able to, is to lock in a uh, positive feedback circuit on intelligence production. And, um, you know, to have, therefore, an intelligent, a, a runaway intelligenic process. This is, this is something that I think is uniquely modern and that, um, you know, it's often when you're looking at the, the, the highest examples of intelligence in, in a culture, you're looking precisely at the way that it has been fixed and crystallized and, and immunized against that kind of runaway dynamic. Um, the kind of loops involving technological and economic processes that, that allow intelligence to sort of go into a self-amplifying circuit, I think are quite deliberately constrained, you know, often by the fact that the figure of the intellectual is, uh, you know, in a highly coded way, separated from the kind of techno-social tinkering that could, could make those kind of circuits activate. And so I think what, what we're talking about with modernity or capitalism is the fact that, that, that the inhibitor system on that kind of circuitry becomes dysfunctional and, and, and ceases to, to obtain. What, what, what is unique um, about zero, you think, that kind of unlocks something? Like, why would the arrival of zero specifically uh, perhaps be a candidate for, for the profound shift that occurs? The most striking thing about the, the explosion of modernity in, in all of its dimensions is it has this immensely mathematical character. You know, and, and when you're saying, look, when has, has uh, modernity uh, erupted yet? You're, you're looking, you know, if you're looking at the natural sciences, you're looking about the fact that, that it's about the mathematization of, of, of theories of nature. If you're looking at, at, at business, you're looking at obviously the absolutely 
fabulous explosion of these systems of accountancy that were completely unprecedented in like scale and complexity and sophistication before. Um, obviously, you know, technology, similarly, it's to do with applied mathematics. And so, you know, on one level, the arrival of, of zero in the culture is the arrival of a, um, a truly functional mathematics, you know, just out of that arithmetical semiotic. And, and if you go back the other way, you can say, well, you know, so, you know, if in the mirror, when we're talking about modernity as a singularity, we're, we're actually engaged in a study of social control systems, um, dampening devices, inhibitors, a, a whole, you know, exotic flora and fauna of these systems for the constraining of explosive dynamics. And it seems to me clearly in the Western case, uh, one, what we can see retrospectively, one crucial inhibitor mechanism was the, 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 the radically defective nature of the arithmetical semiotic that was then dominant in, in the West. Um, and so, again, you know, we're really talking about a sort of negative phenomenon, that zero just uh, liquidates a certain system of semiotic shielding that is kind of dampening down certain potential processes. You know, the pre-modern worldview can be sort of thought about as an artificially constrained scale of the relative values and magnitudes of things, right? This is perhaps most famously encoded in the notion of the great chain of being. So if we, if we kind of just uh, very crudely simplify the pre-modern worldview as this, as this worldview in which everything has a place, right. everything has some sort of positive value, in other words, starting at zero and going up to God or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and, ev and so everything in the world, everything that's real, everything that exists, you know, has a, has a, some value greater than zero in some sense. And those values are known. They're enforced by traditional authorities. And, you know, they even um, make a good deal of sense uh, relative to human heuristics yeah. about what is valuable and, and attractive and what's not. And so that can actually work uh, fairly well in a limited way for some time. But what's interesting about that is you can see it as, as a kind of suppression of, of zero in some sense, or it's like what it doesn't quite, what it's not quite, what it's not quite able to intuit is that in fact, the number line goes from, you know, negative infinity to positive infinity and there is a, you know, smack dab in the middle of that, a, yes. a unique quantitative value of zero that actually has no value whatsoever. And I, the reason why I, I think that this way of thinking about it might be relevant or just useful heuristically is because it seems to me that part of the catastrophe of 
modernity as it unfolds, especially for kind of human experience and, uh, you know, our, our ability to process what's happening and to, you know, interact with each other in, in at all healthy and sustainable ways. There's this very peculiar symmetry or kind of really chaotic, chaotically cycling, uh, nature to, to intelligence where it really is kind of the basis of all good and the ba- and the basis of of much that people call evil. And I wonder if, you know, your idea about zero has something to do with this, because in some sense you can think of the pre-modern worldview enforced by traditional authorities as, as keeping a kind of forced lid on precisely that, that chaotic cycling around the zero point. The liberation of mathematics is kind of the unmooring of uh, rationality's ability to anchor itself ethically, um, it seems to me that the the, the pre modern traditions and especially that you know the world religions, um, perhaps I have in mind Catholicism in particular, is is almost you can really read it as precisely um, uh, one dedicated solution to to that very problem, um, and perhaps that's why zero is unique. If if in fact your hypothesis is right, because it sort of makes possible this this chaotically perverse. Um, you know, symmetry around, around the number line or something like that. Where you started off, it seems to me it's worth isolating in itself because it, it's, it's super convincing even before you then spin it out into the, into the larger picture, which is, which is this question just about the scale of available magnitudes. You know, if you, if you look at, I mean, I, I totally, I think this is a really great insight. Um, and, um, it's obviously uh, hugely characteristic of this transition of arithmetical semiotics. You know, in if you're using Roman numerals, every new magnitude has has a letter. I mean, you run out of letters; like uh, they don't even use them all. You know, exactly as you say, that the range of conceivable magnitudes would therefore be hugely. Uh, constrained by that semiotic, and and it, it clearly is a characteristically modern phenomenon to have this massive explosion in the range of conceivable magnitudes, and and something that the the, the semiotic obviously just pushes uh, pushes hard, and and I think we we really it's a really reliable index of acceleration um you know the fact that we now talk about billions and trillions quadrillions in a way that's very recent i mean you know you don't have to go back very far before you know billion seemed like an almost preposterous number you know what i mean and the notion that you would you you would just be throwing it into casual conversation that it's something that's just marked on your memory chip um, was totally inconceivable. So I think that that's definitely, I think that's definitely right. I think that there's an imagined, we can use your language, like great chain of being that involves a relatively limited number of conceptually manageable magnitudes, you know, marked fairly adequately by the, by the, by the letters of the of the Roman alphabet, um, and that is just blown 
to pieces into this screaming cosmic immensity that the, that the, the new numbers open for us. Yeah, I guess zero is also uniquely abstract if you think about it. So it might have something yes. to do. It might be. It might have something to do with a certain opening onto abstraction, because you know. Oh, totally, you can't yeah. say that strongly enough. I mean, it's the absolute definition of the absolutely abstract, isn't it? So to, that's that. Yeah, I can't nod along enough in, in in agreement with that. At a certain point our technologies for abstraction reach a breaking point where intelligence itself becomes autoproductive. If I understood you correctly. I mean, well, I don't know. I, I think that, that, you know, that actually is a model closer to something like a kind of Kurtzweil type, uh, historical model and it's it, it's not that i don't think there's much to that but but just to at the risk of being really repetitive here the thing i would really want to emphasize and keep on the table with this of talking about what we mean by the pre-modern is we're talking about entirely positive inhibitory apparatus you know and it, this should be difficult for us i mean in the sense that that you know in the in the early stages of uh, control engineering of, of cybernetics, all the emphasis is on inhibitory apparatus. I mean, the inhibitory apparatus is just considered, you know, into mid-century, mid-20th century, being obviously what control engineering is is about. So, so that the explosive the explosive element is systematically um, themed as pathological, dysfunctional, as, as disturbance, um, as, as some kind of uh, social threat. And, and that's why, you know, I'm slightly reluctant to see that it translated into the point as if, you know, there's this long-term trend struggling towards getting to takeoff point, you know, as if, as if the, as if the, the historical impetus is basically straining towards this explosive outcome as if, as if it, it finally arrives at the capacity for modernity. I mean, this, this is not the model that I think is realistic. I think it's rather that there is a, that there is a regime failure that allows modernity to break out. Okay. That's interesting distinction. Uh, that's, that's definitely worth making. So you actually don't see kind of the explosive dynamics of intelligence accumulation over time as a process that begins in the beginning of time. Yes. I mean, look, it has to be said in saying that, that of course you only have a, a sophisticated, complicated inhibitory structure if there's something that you're inhibiting. So of course, you know, there's, you know, in any complex information system, unquestionably throughout the history of life, there have been, you know, processes of positive cybernetic escape um, 
and within those fields, appropriate systems of of the production of uh, inhibitory apparatus. Right. So, so it's not that I'm wanting to say that that positive potential is something that only sort of miraculously arrived in modernity. I think, I think, you know, it, it's, I think I'm quoting Deleuze and Guattari where they say it's the, the kind of terror that's haunted the whole of history or something of that kind. I, I think that's totally right. You know, I think that when you're doing this, this concrete analysis of the actual machinery of a, a pre-modern regime, you, you're in, you're implicitly looking at the way that it prevents a kind of autocatalytic catastrophe happening in the, in the, under the conditions of that society. One of the things that I think is really interesting about your, your work is the way that you, you really emphasize that critique, as we know it, is more or less the same thing, or at least this is your argument, I think, if I understand you correctly, that critique is more or less the same thing as capitalism itself. Yes, I think so. And, and at, at the absolute leap as modern thought, modern, modern philosophy. Yeah. A lot of people today, I think, walk around with a kind of model in their heads in which rational critique and leftism are more or less synonymous. People think of, you know, Marx and the whole, the entire tradition of criticizing capitalism as kind of the epitome of applying the human mind to social institutions. Uh, and so a lot of people carry around this, this kind of natural presumption that rationality and intelligent critique is a kind of natural partner of creating social organizations and projects and institutions to make sort of the irrationality of capitalism more rational in some sense. So you've, by, by kind of holding this line that you've, that you've held and really kind of working on it and tilling this ground, uh, you know, quite against the grain of what a lot of people's conventional wisdom is. I actually think now it's, it's super useful. It seems to me that right now everyone's sort of ideological codes are kind of being scrambled. And, uh, if you kind of have this, this, natural presumption in which, you know, we use our intelligence and rationality to, to criticize the stupidity and insanity of capitalism that gets short circuited, uh, pretty badly. I think when you, when you kind of look around, I wonder if you could maybe try to kind of back out this idea a little bit more, or, um, if you could just speak to, to speak to that a little bit more, I wonder. There's a lot of, uh, architecture in the in the history of philosophy that is basically putting this stuff uh into place i mean you know i think the most the 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 largest recent shift is again the, the joint work of deleuze and guattari where i think that this fusion of the functioning of critique and the, and the, and the capitalist mechanism is really brought together with huge intensity already very clearly you know you can't when you're reading their account of of history and their reading of Kant they're exactly the same they're exactly the same things 
and and obviously you know for them the state is basically the ultimate metaphysical object so everything we started with in terms of this whole question of eliminating indispensable nodes root arounds all of this kind of thing plugs plugs straight onto that like you know the the, the state is that is that historical element that presents itself as the indispensable node the great hub the supreme object and and in that way is actually the material and historical incarnation of metaphysics as 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 a kind of materialized social problem from that from the Deleuze Guattari point of view but then I think you can go back also you know before that definitely I mean in my sort of graduate education I I was lucky to sort of have some very smart uh, Marxist uh, teachers I, I probably shouldn't name them because they it, it will probably not do them any favors right now if I did but but the, but the uh but the notion of a Kant capital complex was something that was totally in play for these people already in like nine, late 1980s. I mean, and, and so far before that, that's just where, where I came, came across it. And, and so the, obviously the, if that's the reference, then the dominant questions is, is all about, you know, the overcoming of Kantianism is exactly the same philosophical task as the overcoming of capitalism as a socio-political task. And, and, and as I just want to say this was very explicit for them. I mean, it, it, it's not that that requires some kind of later interpretive overlay to make that kind of move. So if I can just say one, just as a sort of a appendix to that point, so it's just to say when, you, when you're talking about critique and rationality and these and these various these various notions that can obviously be quite nebulous or they can be very uh philosophically rigorized but i think if they're philosophically rigorized from a leftist perspective then they're probably being rigorized in relation to this notion of what it would be to overcome kant and i don't think that Kantianism itself, uh, except by the most extreme set of intellectual confusions, can be understood as an inherently counter-capitalist mode of intellectual or cultural process. Is it fair to say then that in some sense, one of the reasons that blockchain is so fascinating is because it is sort of this overcoming of Kantianism that is also a certain kind of overcoming of capitalism, sort of philosophy in practice. Is that how you see it? Well, that is how I would expect an articulate leftist to see it. I mean, I would not go that way at all. I, my position is that the stubborn vindication of Kantianism as the horizon of modern intelligence is the dominant 
phenomenon. And so, I mean, I see blockchain as being Kantian. I mean, there's there's obviously some kind of updating that happens through the process of technical implementation, but there's nothing like the kind of overcoming that is seen, you know, in the in the history of German idealism, sort of leading into Marxism. I just I just don't see uh, that kind of thing at all. I think that you've got a much more stubborn isomorphism between the actual mechanism of critique and the, and the, the, the process of, of the blockchain. Yes. Well, I mean, who knows what's down the road, but it certainly seems to me that it's kind of a, an intensive transition in the autonomy of capital, which, and, and which I think can be translated into the, the robustness of these route-around processes. So obviously, you know, why there is a, a, a kind of left critique, maybe I shouldn't even use the word critique because I think it might lead to confusion, but, but, but deep leftist objection to the blockchain, which seems to me very uh, rational and, and coherent and, and on point, is the fact that it obviously is a, a, an escape route for capital that makes a whole series of social projects based upon the domestication of capital become increasingly implausible. While it, blockchain is clearly sort of giving, as you said, route arounds for, for capital to escape, it's also undeniably on the side of liberation from control, right? So it's like you, with, with the advent of blockchain, you, if you're against blockchain, in other words, you, and you want to suppress it and control it, and you generally see it as a bad thing, you can't also pretend that you're interested in liberation from control structures. And, and I think that's a very valuable and, and quite attractive kind of byproduct of the way that these theoretical notions are getting manifested in, in the technology. No, well, I don't think I would disagree with that, but it just seems to me to sort of, I mean, I just assume that, you know, what is seen as the kind of libertarian potential of these technologies and its capitalist potential are more or less synonymous notions and that the dominant sentiment on the left is that, is that these things are bad and that, and that a, a, a language of liberation is the way that capital masks its actual process in a in a in a in a in a, a language of emancipation that you know I, I had sort of taken from the from the leftist point of view is is profoundly inadequate you know it's not sufficiently collective in its orientation it it's not it's basically uh, extremely cold in terms of any questions of amelioration of uh, so problems of social disadvantage and underdevelopment and and all of these kind of things. So, you know, um, I mean, obviously, I, I, I don't see how anyone could, could disagree that there is a 
challenge to systems of control. I, I would have thought the, the the question is whether you know um, the the dominant political argument that continually comes back is whether certain systems of control are actually required for the collectivization of emancipation rather than its more Darwinian uh, Darwinian variants. Some things might surprise me that don't surprise you. Um, I, I guess perhaps the, the kernel of insight that was uh, maybe more promising what I said, which is, is, is that it seems to me that leftism as a kind of sociological phenomenon that does still characterize, you know, the attitudes and, and behaviors of, of fairly large numbers of human beings today, it still traffics in, it still traffics in um, kind of the connotations of, of liberation. Um, and it seems, and it seems to me that that is going to become perhaps a prediction um, that emerges from this c- conversation about blockchain is that uh, that will become increasingly less and less tenable as the technology becomes uh, more widely distributed and it will become increasingly hard to deny that leftism is simply, I think as you put it in our last conversation, that leftism is simply uh, the break upon uh, liberation in some sense. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of, the, 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 that language is, is it's not that I've got any, problem with it really except that it just sounds a little bit uh too easily triumphalist you know from from the from the right side i mean i i do think insofar as the language of liberation is about the ability to escape and root around um structures of control and then that is almost like tautologically inevitable i mean i i just I, i'm not even really seeing a coherent objection but but i mean i'm not as you know the world's greatest sympathizer of the of the leftist political orientation and and so i tend to see that the language of liberation in leftist you know in leftist rhetoric is often quite sophistical you know i mean i d- it, I don't expect a lot of um, conceptual integrity when from it. And I think the thing that blockchain is doing on this level is it just bypasses uh, philosophical and political argument. You know, it's just that people just simply do a route around. They they, they don't, it, it doesn't require some sort of, collective affirmation at the at the barricades or 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 any such thing so um the the it seems to me the rhetoric around it is in a certain sense very obviously secondary in a way that isn't true of a whole number of other socio-political projects where it seems that the kind of the rhetoric and the political phenomenon are much more integrated could you say a little bit about how you think blockchain or Bitcoin affects our understanding of time? Because I think you have some particular ideas about that. Is that right? The whole of critique and the whole of capitalism um, can be translated into a 
uh, into a discourse on time or questions of time. So there's, you know, most famously, perhaps, you know, the sort of Heideggerian formulation of critique that seems to me conservative in its essentials. Uh, that's to say, I don't think it is a candidate for a post-Kantianism, but I think it's definitely uh, enriching in, in the fact that it, it it's quite clear about sort of adding certain insightful formulations. And, and they tend to be um, time-oriented. So, so the, the, the Heideggerian translation of the basic critical argument is, is that the metaphysical error is to understand time as something in time. So you translate this language of objectivity and objects into the language of, of temporality and intratemporality. And um, I think have equally plausible uh, ability to sort of construe the previous history of, of metaphysical philosophy in terms of that now, that critical formulation of, of what it is to, to make um, an error. Um, uh, so the, the basic error then at this point is, is to try to think time as something in time. Um, so that's just, that's just to say, therefore, that, the, 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 you know, if, if it wasn't possible to, to make some point about Bitcoin and time, it would be strange, you know, having already said that Bitcoin is the, is the highest level of instantiation, technologically instantiation of critique, there, there is, it come, there's also a kind of obligation that comes with that to, to say, so what is, what, what is it saying about time? And I guess my argument is that it's the first serious candidate that we have seen for artificial time. Um, and the context in that, that I think has drawn the most interest from people that I've, that I've had the opportunity to discuss this with is really to do with um, Einsteinian relativistic physics, um, where, again, the basic sort of gesture that I want to make is, is in a way, a kind of reactionary one of, of saying there's a kind of revival of this of a Kantian structure that had seemed to be destroyed, you know. So there's obviously extremely impressive, powerful scientific case for the destruction of time as an autonomous, um, I won't say dimension, because I think that one has already, in a way, taken a fatal step in saying that. But time, the autonomy of time from space is something that seems to have been... Um, destroyed by by the, the notion of general relativity. Uh, and I think Minkowski actually is the is the character. I'm, I'm obviously making no pretenses to to technical expertise on the on the physics side of this. But I think Minkowski space time is where you get the most clear mathematical 
formulation of this new and what had been taken to be sort of a modern take on this. And the background to it is very tied up with the eclipse of Kantianism in the late 19th century and early 20th century, where it had seemed that Kant was incapable because through what is seen as being his naive Euclidianism of dealing with the new, the, the new geometries that are being introduced in the 19th century and then their application to physics that we see in the 20th century. Um, so, okay, sorry, this is all, there's a lot of sort of preliminaries to this, but, but, but there is a, an absolutely fascinating little exchange on a, on a kind of crypto mail, mail board, I think around about the time that Bitcoin is actually being launched. And um, I, I, I'm reluctant to hunt it down right now on the internet because I think I might flip out the, the conversation. So I'll just gloss it if I, if I can. But, but Satoshi Nakamoto in that exchange, says that uh, the, the system of, of consensus that the blockchain is based upon, distributed consensus that then later becomes known as Nakamoto consensus, um, resolves a set of problems um, that include um, the priority of messages, um, um, global coordination, um, various problems that are exactly the problems that um, relativistic physics say are insoluble. Um, it's it's in relativistic physics between two sufficiently distant points. In, in space, it's, sim it's simply impossible to say, uh, meaningless to say, even which of, which of two events comes first. You know, the notion of simultaneity is lost, um, time order is lost. Instead, you have space-time coordinates. So from a, from a certain reference frame, there's a certain ordering of events. But from another reference frame, that ordering of events might be completely inverted. So absolute Newtonian time is lost. Newtonian space as well is lost. But the blockchain simply cannot function. If insofar as the blockchain functions at all, it's because that kind of relativistic structure does not obtain upon it. Um, it, it were were it the case that uh, the, the space and time of the blockchain were, were modeled by relativistic physics, then what uh, Nakamoto, Satoshi Nakamoto calls the double spending problem would be insoluble. So, so what I'm wanting to argue is the double spending problem is exactly translatable into the kind of uh, problems of classical physics that relativistic physics describes as insoluble. 
like if it, the, the equivalent of a, of the of relativistic physics within the world of blockchain would be to say you cannot solve the double spending problem you know it it's you know if if we believe if we believe einstein and we believe it's translatable into into the blockchain then the double spending problem is insoluble the blockchain since resolving the double spending problem is the main thing that the blockchain does the block there cannot be blockchains so the very existence of blockchains in some i think fascinating way shows that you know we cannot use the kind of thinking that characterizes our uh, you know einsteinian physics when we're thinking about this about this world okay so that's fascinating so you think that blockchain basically surpasses the relativistic theory of physics well i think you could easily end up saying really ridiculous things um so i i, w- I would really like to try to be cautious about it you know the, the minimal claim is this is to say that within an within an einsteinian paradigm the double spending problem is insoluble so then, so well, how, so how do we square this stuff? I mean, in a sense that I obviously don't want to say like Einstein is, is wrong and, and Satoshi Nakamoto proves that or some, you know what I mean? There's a whole bunch of sort of inflated weird claims, uh, that you know, the Bitcoin will overthrow modern physics or, or whatever that, that could flow from this. And, and I think clearly have to be avoided. So what is the, what is the kind of, acceptably sober conclusion that is that is that is drawn about this and as i say i think you know i think i can say with some confidence that blockchain um preserves a distinction in type between space and time that uh is not einsteinian that therefore if we're saying, well, what do we mean by time? Uh, when physicists say, you know, that we've lost that notion, I, I have to do a rejoinder of saying, no, that really is not right. We still have time. And the blockchain tells us that we have time. And we have time as something totally different from space. And in the structure of the blockchain, um, the difference between space and time is carried by the difference between the chain and blocks. You know, every block is spatial when defined in terms of time. That's to say it's a unit of simultaneity. Everything which happens within a block in the, in the blockchain is, is, uh, has no differential duration. Whereas blocks, uh, when they're put together into the blockchain, the, the articulation of the blocks in the chain is a time articulation and it's time articulation in a Kantian sense, in a, in a sense, perhaps of classical physics. I think that may be less important. Um, um, it's it, irreducible temporality in the sense that it's not a spatial dimension. Um, um, and so we still have space and time left. Well, how is it possible that we have space and time left? And the answer to that, I think, is that, um, is that there is a there is a technical uh, theorization of this 
that would be rigorously physical um it totally exceeds my 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 competence in 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 every in every dimension but i'm able to see what it would look like i mean maybe someone out there could do this thing which is is that um the simultaneity of a block the the duration of a block because bitcoin bitcoin has has a, has a pulse it has a tick it has a it has a a a kind of a set uh goal of the average time it takes to process a new block well i shouldn't say it's a tick because it's not like a clock it's not that it's set that you'll get a block every 10 minutes it's that the parameters of the system are designed to hunt that like in the, in a kind of almost thermostat sort of sense and that's the equilibrium so it has a it has a model of the kind of regularity uh, of these ticks um and the difficulty of mining the block is is adjustable and is and is fixed in order to basically keep it going at this at, a, at this rate that is considered ideal and th and that rate is a function of the spatial scope of the system. So it can establish a model of time. Um, it, it still is subject to cosmophysics. So, you know, if I'm mining Bitcoin on Earth and someone else is mining Bitcoin, even somewhere close like Mars, then we still have a relativistic problem potentially. And if you're going to have a, a, a blockchain, it must be that the, the, the metabolism of the blockchain considered, that's to say it's, 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 it's tick, is sufficiently expansive that it's able to absorb any relativistic distortion that happens due to the time lag of uh, signals passing around in the system. So because, because, the, because on Earth, the relativistic effects of large distances are pretty tiny. So, um, you know, you're just talking about a fraction of a second, probably. Um, then even, even quite regular turnover of blocks is completely satisfactory, given the way the blockchain works, that it chunks time into these units of simultaneity called blocks and then stacks the blocks in this absolutely fixed a chronological order it's the blocks we have are quite long enough quite uh, the, the magnitude of the blocks measured in time is quite adequate to maintain this artificial temporality under terrestrial conditions but but were were the blockchain to be fanned out deeper into the cosmos then then the block the, the block time would become Larger and larger and larger and larger, and I and I think ultimately, uh, maybe not, maybe quite quickly would become impractical. So, you know, you'd be mining a block every six hours or something if you're if you're if you're just ex extending a blockchain into into the inner solar system, or you know, if you go out into the outer solar system, then you might need to to have spend days before you're allowed to you know, uh, 
for the system to tick forward and another block be added to the, to the blockchain. So this is what, so just to, sorry, I know this is, uh, this is not very articulately said, but it's that, that, that therefore, of course, I'm not saying that Einsteinian physics is wrong. I'm saying that the blockchain is in a substantial way autonomous of the most kind of extreme, uh, uh, relativistic conclusions of that because because we you know we do still have absolute time and the blockchain instantiates it um but what einstein the, the einsteinian physics put constraints on the blockchain in that there has to be this relation between the regularity of uh block production and the spatial magnitude of the system and that, and that if you do then fan out beyond the earth, they, they could become constraining and, and has the further implication that, um, at astronomical scales, you probably just have to have block, a plurality of blockchains. I don't think, I don't think the notion of the blockchain scales up astronomically. Uh, for Einsteinian reasons. Okay. So, okay. I mean, I think that's incredibly all very fascinating. And I, I would probably need to listen to what you just said a few times before I fully grok it. But I think, I think I do basically understand you. I, and I don't think that you're making overly inflated claims about physics. It sounds like what you're really just trying to say is that blockchain is able to te technically instantiate something that one would think is not possible if one were thinking according to the relativistic physical model. Yes, I think so. It, but that relativistic model itself has certain constraints in the fact that obviously, as in a way it knows, it doesn't apply on... Uh, small spatial scales, or at least, I mean, it, it, it does apply in, in theory. There are minute relativistic effects, but they're so minute that there's a technical, an absolutely rigorous, reliable technical fix to relativistic problems on small scales. And blockchain does that fix and therefore restores a notion of of time that means you know we we simply don't have to treat the kind of a uh, foundations of critique the kantian foundations of critique as having been obsolesced in this in this respect we're under no i think intellectual obligation to to do that without making any comments about you know einstein or anything like that even it seems to me that we can say that blockchain is a system that supplies its own objectivity because right because the blockchain is this kind of self-validating trustless uh trustless system in which in some sense it's like a technical prohibition on the possibility of lying <laughs> in some sense once you have rational critique and rational critique is out of the bag and and everyone's able to critique everything uh, you actually have some serious problems for the very possibility of rational critique because everything becomes relative to everything else. And 
that's, you know, a kind of quick and dirty way to summarize the, the unmooring, the cognitive unmooring that modernity represents. Um, you could kind of understand that on a spatial metaphor in the sense that we can create rational system in modernity up until this point, we can create rational systems, uh, that are internally rational. Um, but their relationship to other, other people or figures or spaces, um, is, is totally relative and arbitrary. Um, and people can just basically, people can, people can, you know, let's say tell lies, right. Uh, and in the most quotidian sense, people can lie and get away with it in some part, because when they're caught out locally, they can just sort of move spatially, <laughs> you know, they can kind of, uh, leave the area in which they're outed as liars, move spatially and be liars somewhere else. Um, in some sense, that sort of spatial relativity, and again, I only mean that in a metaphorical sense, that, that spatial relativity seems to be a kind of basis on which, uh, the, the cognitive chaos of modernity is possible. But in some sense, you know, if you're arguing that, that blockchain is artificial time, that in, at least in some non-trivial meaningful sense, um, is able to instantiate itself in a way that uh, is not subject uh, to the to the the relativism that we might expect, then in some sense does it not does it not solve the basic problem of it does it not solve the the, the spatial problem of lying and kind of uh, cognitive disorientation that, uh, the, the current state of modernity, uh, could perhaps be described as. In other words, within blockchains, you're going to have a perfect technical realization of objective truth. And there's no, there's no routing around that within the blockchain. Now you can have multiple blockchains and you know, this, you know, might result in something like a, a patchwork of blockchains, which is actually another kind of avenue of conversation we, we could very well go down. Um, but you're going to have sort of, uh, perfectly objective internal systems. And I just wonder how that feeds back into what, what you think about the nature of critique or, you know, is that like a perfection? Is, in other words, is that perhaps a perfection of critique in the in the sense that um, to sort of wrap this this long tirade into a, a sensible punchline? Is this not the perfection of critique into a state in which lying or spatial displacement uh, becomes finally uh, non-relative or impossible? I think that when you say about spatial displacement. Uh, in relation to this question of lying, um, it's quite strongly analogous to what you then quite rightly end up with in terms of this proliferation of distinct blockchains. Um, I think, okay, let me just get, I think, because this, this is something I think that's like sort of kind of haunted 
our discussion right from the start, and maybe we haven't brought it out very explicitly. And in, in, in terms of these questions about rationality and critique in its colloquial, in its colloquial sense. And, and I think what, you know, there, there's been the question that you've obviously been very interested, Justin, of this thing about the ideological valency of, of this notion of critique and, and how this applies to left and right. And, um, I think in this, in this context, you know, I think you, or let me at least say, uh, test you to see to what a degree you think that this is, this is right, that the difference at stake is between a model predominant on the left, which is to do with some, um, that what is meant by reason is really the the, the formation of a, an intellectual community, or, or you know, you you start off with people who have uh, you know a disparate series of assumptions or disparate drawing disparate conclusions or inferences, um, and the process of rationality is one that, in a certain sense, harmonizes that intellectual community. Um, whereas the model on the right is much more open to um, fragmentation and enduring disagreement and the operation of, of various kinds of selective processes to resolve resolve the issue you know and so obviously the you know the the business corporation is the model of this in the sense that you you don't try and work out in advance as a society what's the best way to run a business you you allow people to to basically try almost anything that they want and um the businesses that work work and the ones that don't work are end up being liquidated and you know that selective process is the one that substitutes for a process for the necessity of of an intellectual community. So, if that, if that, if first of all, I mean, I don't know whether you think that that way of articulating the difference is is something that is convincing from from your point of view. Maybe I should pause and and see. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it is in some sense. I feel like a recurring theme, perhaps or a recurring implication that I've, I've had a sense of throughout my conversations with you is that it's almost as if technological acceleration is simply going to obviate almost all of the conceptual baggage that we use to try and figure out our political situation as human beings. In other words, we have these kind of legacy categories such as left and right that are largely just byproducts of certain technological inefficiencies. You know, we need to sort of uh, aggregate decision-making over time. You know, we need to aggregate attitudes over time across you know, large spaces 
So certain concepts emerge to deal with the fact that we have faulty cognitive baggage. We have tendencies to all kinds of biases. We have tendencies to uh, sort. We have tendencies to, you know, we have these kind of uh, basic and faulty cognitive hardwares that we, that we kind of operate on. And for most of, you know, modern political history and modern political theory, a lot of the categories that we use really are just really quite inadequate um, simplifying devices to deal with all of our uh, kind of faulty pieces of hardware or something like that. But as, as the rationalization of that technology and the actual construction of technical hardware uh, or, you know, technical systems, combination of hardware and software, as, as the proficiency of that accelerates, we're just kind of finding that almost all of our concepts are becoming no longer necessary. They kind of just dissolve. Um, and there is just a kind of imminent technical process that is occurring. And it becomes harder and harder to even make sense out of uh, traditional kind of modern uh, political categories. That That's something that I think is, that that's a kind of thesis that I'm, as I'm listening to you, I'm kind of becoming perhaps a little bit more convinced of. But then how would you, what, how do you make sense of, of, of the modern, you know, when I say modern, let me say, said contemporary political atmosphere, which seems to be coming, you know, if anything, more radicalized, more polarized, more heated in terms of the kind of, you know, the weight of these, of these, various kind of markers of ideological affiliation. I mean, I, I'm assuming you, you don't see any any hint of those things, you know, ceasing to ob- obtain in, in that sort of terrain. Well, no, not necessarily in the short run anyway. But isn't it sort of an implication of blockchain that capitalism – or, you know, the, the, the auto development of systemic processes that generate value over time, in other words, are less and less in need of human beings at all, in some sense. So, I mean, once, so, I mean, once you can kind of combine the idea of artificial intelligence with blockchain, I mean, it's just, it's becoming increasingly easy to simply imagine a purely machinic capitalism in which purely, you know, non-carbon based machines, intelligent machines basically uh, have their own kind of global capitalism and increase value on their own over time uh, without any human beings even on the planet. I mean, that's increasingly just, that's almost trivial. That's increasingly almost trivial to imagine capitalism carrying on through artificial intelligence and blockchain as basically every passing generation, human beings find it increasingly impossible to even survive uh, to the point that they're, yeah, that, that humans are completely bypassed. Is that, is that how you see it or no? Um, 
Well, yeah, I think if, if we say bypassed, then then definitely. I mean, I think there's a, a gradient of capital autonomization and, and that as we, you know, what it is to be advanced in modernity is to be moving up that gradient. So, you know, autonomous autonomous machines are are, are the index that are, that is used to say how modern is this? Um, so yes, I, I do agree. But but in terms of how that will play out ideologically, I mean, I don't know whether you saw it was passed around Twitter quite a lot that a, a, an article in the New Statesman by a, pol, a English politician who I think he's called John Cruddyhe or something like that uh, about accelerationism and what he was basically doing i i mean i i've only read it once like fast but it, it seems to me his basic thing was to say look accelerationism is inherently anti-humanist um you know even in its leftward variants it simply can't shake that that's just that's just uh essential to it in a way that that's irreducible and and even though maybe this was more implicit in his argument, it seemed to me he was saying, look, the left, for this reason, the left cannot use this stuff. You know, it's, it's that, that really the left has to align itself with a kind of new humanist resistance to these dehumanizing, autonomizing technological processes. Um, now that seems to me very plausible. I mean, in terms of like, what if, if I was asked what is going to happen to the left, I think it's going to become increasingly and explicitly and fiercely humanist in orientation. So, so, uh, so nonchalance about, about this, the dehumanizing tendency of, of these processes, I think will be seen as a, marker of right-wing ideological affinity right so i think that that's a very reasonable prediction and in large part that basically characterizes what seems to be happening right now so i think you're on point i think i would only add to that at least one alternative possibility and you know i should say very clearly i'm not necessarily predicting i'm i'm really just kind of riffing and and speculating about possibilities and also indicating what I think is perhaps the most attractive line of thought for people today who are interested in, uh, you know, radical philosophy and, and, and thinking as critically as possible about the, the human predicament at this point in time, uh, especially for people from a, from a kind of left-wing perspective that, as I think you and I both agree, uh, you know, the traditional modern coordinates of which are being, you know, rapidly um, kind of destroyed. Um, but if you if you do still have a kind of left wing uh, an interest in kind of the left wing tradition, personally, I think the most exciting lines of thought have to do with leveraging blockchain. To be honest, and I'm especially interested in potentially connecting blockchain to uh, these ideas of patchwork, um, because in my view, the most the most honest and intelligent position for serious kind of intellectual projects with a with a kind of left-wing 
flavor. In other words, people who are still interested in the idea of, of building kind of radical liberatory communities that are, um, in some part kind of insulated or that, uh, transcend the drudgery, um, and oppressiveness that's associated with, with market discipline. Um, it seems to me that if you're really into that and you think that that is, there's a way to organize life like that, that is superior and also kind of in engineering terms possible and, and empirically serious, then we should be able to build a patch. I think, uh, leveraging the, you know, the, the most state of the art technical possibilities, uh, to make something like communism, a superior form of living that would actually function better than, um, uh, you know, current, current forms of economic and political organization. And I'm actually fairly, I feel, you know, I wouldn't put the probability of achieving that that very high, but I would probably put it much higher than I think most people who are thinking about this sort of stuff in any kind of mature or serious way. I actually think that it, it, it's quite imaginable um, that a a kind of communist patch, if organized correctly, could would actually outperform and outcompete, um, you know, more more reactionary flavored patches. Um, but I'm also aware that we've been talking for quite a while, and I didn't mean to just put a huge provocation on the table uh, um, an hour an hour and forty minutes in. <laughs> no, no, that's that's good. I mean. Look- yeah, I mean, look, my my position on what you've just said is, is I, I I totally welcome this this tendency, for, obviously from outside. I mean, I'm profoundly skeptical about the mm. prospects of 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 these, as you say. I think in a most extreme way of describing it, of a communist patch. I mean, you know, I'm not going to be investing <laughs> in them, but I entirely uh, support. The, the project, you know, and it seems to me that you're, that what's here, there's a lineage of, there's a, a left lineage that should be entirely unobjectionable to the, the liberal in the old sense tradition of capitalistic modernity, which is the tradition of experimental communes, of experimental cooperative organized businesses, and now, um, as you say, of experimental uh, left-flavored blockchain innovation. I mean, I, I just I don't think there is any legitimate basis for a right-wing critique of such things being undertaken. There is, of course, m- much much room for right-wing skepticism about about their their, their chances of, of success. But, you know, that seems to me an isolable and irrelevant um, issue because I'm assuming you don't need you don't need right wing endorsement of, of these things at, at that level. You, you simply meet, need social permission. And, and I would, of course, hope that social permission will be there and be ever easier to to, to find for this kind of thing. It's ironic, but the, if there's a social permission problem, it's coming from the left. And that's just so bizarre. And that, that can kind of explain for you why I'm, you know, so, so obsessed with trying to sort of unwind these, these strange ideological loops. Yes.
I know it's late for you, and I know we've been talking for for some time now, but it's actually quite a natural segue. Yeah, sure, since sure. you invoked social permission, maybe you could reflect a little bit, or maybe share some of your insights from your experience becoming, in a lot of people's eyes, quite a pariah figure. Something that I've always been very curious about is, you know, when you when you first started getting a lot of condemnation, especially from the left in 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 England and you know in, in the West at least or whatever. Um, you know, I'm very curious. Like, were you were you even surprised how much condemnation was generated, or or had you already kind of factored that into your model of the world? In other words, you kind of you were quite conscious of the provocations you were making and the effects that it would have, or you were even uh, stunned at how kind of offended people were by some of your ideas? The model was precisely predicting the level of condemnation that uh, that arose. Because the model, I think the, the, the phase of my, um, of my, Activity that has generated the, the 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 most kind of thermonuclear hostility is obviously based is on my uh, sort of encounter with Mencius Moldbug, and particularly with his his basic model that we're dealing with, you know, the, what he calls the cathedral is the state church of the supposedly secular West, and that that state church engages in entirely traditional modes of cultural policing based upon zealous extirpation of heresy. Um, and all you need to know is, you know, what are the significant heresies of the, of the, of the state of the church that you're concerned with? And, and those, um, those responses are as, predictable as um, the results from a particle accelerator given a good a good standard model of, of the nature of subatomic interactions. I mean, it's completely unsurprising. And in fact, if surprising, surprising only in that they are so completely and unironically falling into the pattern predicted by their enemies. You know, they are just, in a sense, um, I think the, the, the tragedy of the left, as I've seen it really in the last five years, is the fact that it, ha it, it lacks any sense of what it looks like outside its own framework. And the fact that it, it does seem to be so entirely predictable in its set of, in its set of responses. Your model of the world had already been updated such that you knew saying the things you wanted to say was going to trigger quite a lot of outrage, but in some sense you were willing to do that precisely because your model of the world was such that you had really nothing to lose. No, I mean, that, that, that condemnation was extremely valuable um, scientific confirmation as far as I was concerned, of the validity of the Moldbug thesis and, and, and played a large role in consolidating it, in, in, as far as I'm concerned. Um, now, if nothing like that had happened, I would have probably had to just 
dump mold bug in the trash and say, you know, not nice theory, but clearly the world doesn't work like that. It's like if you if you actually want to try and figure out the left wing project, your your number one immediate enemy is all the people on the left today, or at least let's say the people who kind of occupy the word and and the associated vocabulary of of leftism as a kind of recognized manifestation. These legacy concepts are just so overheated that they they make no they really don't make that much that much sense anymore i i think you can overdo historical analogy to some extent but because of because modernity does have is a coherent you know it's it's a kind of it's cross cut by all kind of randomness and complexity and discontinuities but 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 ultimately it's a coherent process and and i think it supports to a considerable extent cross Cross historical analysis within the history of modernity. We've we've made lots, and probably probably this is a more my voice, more my vice than yours. Uh, but over the course of this conversation, and and the one I think that just is hugely hugely relevant to this. Maybe we even talked about it last last uh, time we were talking because it because it is so attractive to me. It is the you know early stages of modernity and the processes of reformation and the interaction of this revolutionary new media system based on the printing press and the traditions of church authority. And I think we're seeing exactly the same. I mean, I think it fits extremely well with what you've just said. I, I think that there is a church, you know, it's, it's quite coherent. It has a very definite sense of orthodoxy and heresy you know we 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 know it does you know we you can argue about how fragmented or pluralistic or whatever society is but but you know you will get this uh you'll get this language from the left which i which what i will continue to call the left um that is is based upon the fact that any decent acceptable person will subscribe to this belief and you know this belief is completely unacceptable. You know, it should be uh, no platform suppressed. Uh, maybe you even should be imprisoned for the voicing of, of certain, you know, extremely heretical opinions. So, of course, it is it is a coherent cultural entity. We can we can see if it was not a coherent cultural entity, it could not possibly have any belief in its capacity for doctrinal policing. And we see that it has this confidence of doctrinal policing all the time. You know, it's just we're being bombarded with it. It's, a, it's the dominant sort of ideological phenomenon of our age is the crisis of, I would use Mobug's language, cathedral doctrinal policing. And 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 of course that crisis is being driven by new media technologies that I think are completely unstoppable, and and I think that you know the cathedral in its modern form has roughly the same prospects that the notion of a universal authority of Catholic Church had in early modern Europe, like none. You know, there's there's going to be 
wars of religion, the 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 heresy of of you know uh, heretical thinking is not going to be suppressible. Um, there are questions about how much you know and what intensity of violence and conflict and failed policing operations will be required. But at the end of the day, the media system, the technological and media system dictates that there has to be a retrenchment on the part of the of the established church into a more realistic, defensible position. Um, enclaves, partition of various kinds, zones of zones of sovereignties, you know, that that are based upon a, an acceptance of fragmentation and diversity and um, differential regime structures that as yet is not accepted. But I have absolute confidence that that's the trend that we're involved in. Well, Nick, I think I'm going to let you have the last word on that one because, I mean, I could talk with you much longer about many more things, but I'm conscious that it's late there and I really don't want to overtax you. So you got to draw a line okay. somewhere. So I that's feel like great. I should let you off here. Okay, that's great. That's I've really. Uh, this has been great fun, Justin. Yeah, so really, best of luck with all of that. I've really enjoyed it. And I will even go as far to say best of luck with your communist blockchain, <laughs> as long as you're not uh, you're not looking for investment.